The scripture is Jude 1, 1 through 25. A servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, who are beloved in God the Father and kept safe for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write an appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all handed onto the saints. For certain intruders have stolen in among you, people who long ago were designated for this conversation as ungodly, who pervert the grace of our God into debauchery and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you are fully informed, once and for all, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their own position but deserted their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change in deepest darkness for the judgment of the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which in the same manner as they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural lust, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these dreamers also defile the flesh, reject authority, and slander the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, he did not dare to bring a condensation of slander against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people slander whatever they do not understand, and they are destroyed by those things that, like irrational animals, they know by instinct. Woe to them! For they go the way of Cain and abandon themselves to Balaam's error for the sake of gain and perish and Korah's rebellion. These are blots on your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, feeding themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the deep darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Eoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, See, the Lord is coming with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers and malcontests. They indulge their lust, their mouth utter bombastic nonsense, flattering people to their own advantage. But you, beloved, must remember the words previously spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. For they said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers indulging their own ungodly lust. It is these worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, 
who are causing divisions. But you, beloved, build yourselves up upon your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Look forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are wavering. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And have mercy on still others with fear, hating even the tunic defiled by their bodies. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of God to the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. There's something really mighty about a small seed. I wish I had a seed, but I don't guess it would make a whole lot of difference if you'd be able to see it. Now, there's something mighty about a small seed because every plant in our world begins the same way. Small, tiny, insignificant. But you take that seed, let it be planted, let it have some time, let it grow, and even the smallest seed can become a mighty tree. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be unpacking the smallest books that Scripture has to offer us. Now, I know when we were having the Scripture lesson this morning, those 25 verses might not have felt very short. But Jude is one of the top five shortest books of the Bible. It's the longest of the shortest books of the Bible, so it only gets shorter from here. But as we go through each of these uh, books, I want us to pay attention to what they have to offer us, because even the smallest book has a mighty lesson for us. We'll be looking at the book of Jude, Philemon, 2 John, and 3 John, all in the New Testament. Uh, the book of Obadi Obadiah is also included in that, but we might not get to that one. But as we're powering through these small but mighty books, I think that if we sit with these words, let them be planted within us, we might find a mighty lesson for us to glean. For example, Jude. Jude is a book that's been hotly debated for years. And by years, I mean like actually thousands of years. Uh, the book of Jude almost didn't make it into the final product of the Bible that we have before us. And I don't know if you know this, but the Bible itself didn't just like appear out of thin air. There were many different manuscripts and texts that were presented to various councils and through prayer and discernment, academic discussion, consideration, they determined which books would be what we call canonical, that they would be books that made it into the final product of what we call the Holy Bible. And there are the Old Testament books and the New Testament books, 66 total books that uh, get included in this, and some that didn't. Now, if... Uh, if you're part of a different denomination, a different tradition, say the Catholic Church, you have a handful of others because there's also what we call the Apocrypha. 
this other section of works that we don't recognize, we in the Protestant church don't recognize as canonical authoritative books, but other uh, groups of Christians do consider that. And uh, Jude was a very difficult one for these many different councils and many different people to place. For one, we don't know exactly when it was written. We have a rough idea because there are some themes that are presented here that are also in 2 Peter. There are certain references to other works that we know about whenever they were out and, out and around, but we don't know when it was written exactly. We also don't know who it was addressing. There's nothing specific here. We have a hunch, and we're pretty certain that it was a group of Jews who had, uh, who had come to the faith uh, in Christ, but we don't know anything else about them. And we don't even really know who Jude is. Now, he identifies himself as Jude, the brother of James, and if we were to take logic in one direction, what this would say to us is that the author of this is the person, Jude, who is also one of the brothers of Jesus. But there are some things in this work that suggest that this book was actually written uh, in what would be considered the second generation of apostles. So Jude might just be a pseudonym that was written under and uh, just trying to give its, its own letter a little bit more authority. So it's very difficult to determine these kind of factors. Uh, and so that already kind of put it on the fence for many uh, early scholars of uh, scripture where to place it. But then there's another thing. It started citing, or the book of Jude, the epistle of Jude, cites sources that were explicitly left out of the rest of the canonical Bible. Some of these sources, like one text that's called the Assumption of Moses. And the Assumption of Moses is uh, a text that was wildly popular during the first century-ish CE, uh, but after much uh, debate, it was left out of Christian texts and then left out of even Jewish texts because it just felt kind of wild. Another text that it includes, uh, references actually pretty frequently, is none other than our own, the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch is referenced uh, three times in Jude. Uh, and this is one book that uh, most uh, early interpreters said, we're definitely not including that in there because it's a weird book. Come to Sunday evening Bible study and find out. It's well worth the read, and it's absolutely fascinating, and its intention is uh, curious. I'll leave it at that. Um, but overall, it's super weird because, yeah, I, I can't even get into it. It, it takes weeks to, to even cover where we've gotten to so far. And then a third uh, text that it cites, it's a text known as the predictions of the apostles. And what this text actually is, no idea. Nobody's been able to find this text outside of its reference in Jude. So all, again, there's a whole series of reasons why Jude was almost left out. So why did such a small, seemingly insignificant letter end up remaining in scripture? There are plenty of reasons to leave it out. Why does it get left in? The reason is because it has a mighty lesson for us. You see, Christianity didn't even exist yet. It's still a small sect of Judaism. It's not its own religion. 
It's, it's an adaptation on the Jewish faith. And so, because of that, because it's still new, there are lots of people who are swooping in claiming to be experts on it, saying, we know the truth about all of this. Listen to what we have to say. The problem is that their teachings, these false teachers, as Jude calls them, were for their own gain and not to spread the gospel. So, Jude encourages this Christian community to contend for the faith, to wrestle for it, to fight for it, to stand up for the faith. In the face of false messages, there needs to be someone who stands up for the truth. In the face of deep divisions, there needs to be someone who stands up for love. And that is why the book of Jude is written, because Jude challenges the Christian community to stand up in the face of false teachers and divisions and moral laxity for a Christian community to be empowered by grace, Jude gets left in Scripture. Now, as far as Jude goes, we might be under the impression that alternative facts are still a relatively new thing. But they're not. Alternative facts have been around for quite some time. These overtly outlandish messages have been around for millennia, and Jude is one such entity to try to convert, to try to uh, contend with this. And the community that Jude is writing to are a group who have been infiltrated by these false teachers who, in Jude's words, pervert the grace of our God into debauchery and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the teachings that are going on in this community are distinctly immoral, unhelpful, not Christ-like. While Jude does not mention much specifically about what's going on in this community, we can conclude by the references to past uh, heritage of the Jewish faith, what's going on, and it's teachings that are promoting things like faithlessness, sexual impurity, slander, self-interest, greed, and division. In other words, Jude is witnessing a community that claims to be devoted to Christ being wrapped up in moral laxity. They're lazy. They don't actually care about living the faith. They're just there to talk about it. The grace of Christ has become for them an excuse to be lazy. Because if Christ came to die for our sins, then there's no work for us to do anymore. We can do whatever we want because Christ died for our sins. So what does it matter if I go over here and do this? And what does it matter if I go over here and do this? And yay, we're going to promote all of these horrible things. So Jude approaches their moral laxity with what can only be considered an early example of a hellfire and brimstone sermon. He does not hold back. And he does so with distinct lessons from their Jewish heritage. He starts out by telling the people, remember, remember during the time of the Exodus, those who were disobedient to God were destroyed. Recalling various passages where 
uh, there are snakes that are biting people, famine that ends up spreading throughout the community where people are dying in the wilderness because of their faithlessness. Jude then also points out, remember the fallen angels from Noah's time. This is Genesis chapter 6, but also in the book of Enoch. These angels who chose to leave their place in heaven to come and procreate with human women. It makes all kinds of a mess, and then God's like, all right, time for a flood. Don't forget about that time. And also recall as well those friendly cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, where sexual impurity and unnatural lust caused the actual obliteration of two cities from the face of the planet. Maybe also, he points out, remember that time whenever the archangel Michael fought with Satan over the body of Moses. Do you remember that in the Bible? That whole battle between Michael and Satan? It's because it's not in there. <laughs> He's referring to the writing, the assumption of Moses here, that text that has been left out of canons for both Jewish and Christian audiences. This moment where the archangel Michael and Satan are fighting over the body of Moses, he says, even in that point, Michael did not slander the devil. He just said, the Lord, the Lord rebuke you. So whenever these people are slandering over here, if, if even the devil isn't going to be slandered, why on earth are you going to slander all these other people and all these other things? He then recalls for the people, remember Cain. These false teachers, he says, are going in the way of Cain. Genesis chapter three or chapter four, uh, where Cain murders out of his own pride. He says they are going in the way of Balaam. This is a reference to, num to the book of Numbers chapter twenty-two, where this prophet, who is not from the Jewish community, ends up prophesying destruction over the Jewish community or the the uh, nomadic Israelites for his own political and financial gain. Remember also, he says. Korah's Rebellion, not a very often talked about uh, text, but this is Numbers 19, where Korah is a priest, gathers up a bunch of other priests uh, to say, why on earth should Aaron and Moses be our leaders? We should be able to determine our own leaders. They end up fighting uh, on who qualifies for leadership, taking their own incentives rather than God's. And then he brings about one more reference to the book of Enoch, a punishment for the ungodly, those who choose their own interest rather than God, saying, See, the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all who convict all the ungodly of all the deeds of ungodliness they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Can you tell that they're ungodly? I used to hate history classes. I, I, they, they were incredibly boring to me. And I think it's a, a really more of a reflection on uh, our school system in which we don't pay teachers enough and so we end up having coaches who end up teaching history classes and they're there to actually teach, uh, to coach a sport and not to teach history, but you know, we as communities don't want to invest in our school system, so this is what ends up happening. But either way, I didn't, uh, pardon my political messaging for a moment here, but either way, I didn't enjoy history class. I thought it was incredibly boring until I learned the importance of history classes. We learn history so that we're not doomed to repeat it. In the Jewish faith, their history is extremely important to them. 
In fact, they almost exclusively use history to teach new things. Referencing back, remember the time we were enslaved in Egypt and then how God let us free in the Exodus. Remember that time we were in exile, but, the, but God restored us and brought us home. Remember that time whenever the Greek Empire was trying to overwhelm our community, but a group of people called the Maccabees stood up for the temple. Remember, they used their history for this. And so Jude, speaking to an exclusively Jewish audience, uses history of the Exodus, these fallen angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Assumption of Moses, Cain, Balaam, Korah, the Book of Enoch, all to make reference for the people to understand the importance of contending for the faith and avoiding moral laxity. By drawing on their history, Jude is trying to convey the importance of choosing God over selfishness. And so the lesson this, that this small book has for us, this mighty lesson, is that grace is empowerment to do good, not an excuse to be lazy. See, Jude begins his complaint by noting that the false teachers have perverted the grace of our God into debauchery. In other words, these teachers are claiming that the grace of Christ gives us the freedom to do whatever we want. But that's simply not true. This grace, the grace of Christ, is not our get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not a hall pass. It's not an excuse to be lazy. This grace is empowerment for us to live godly lives, to live lives of love and peace and compassion. This small book has a mighty lesson for us. Grace is empowerment to do good, not an excuse to be lazy. Like a seed, let these words be planted within us. Let them grow strong and mighty that out of this small book, we might have a mighty lesson to take to the world. And let us pray.